Welcome to Behind the Song with Allison Cote. I'm your host, Allison. Let's get started. everyone, today on the podcast, I have one of Canada's most beloved Aboriginal Canadian country artists and musicians. He's an amazing singer, fiddle player, and person. Please welcome Donnie Peranto. How are you doing? Good, Allison. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Now that we figured out this technology stuff. <laughs> yes, we did. We got it, though. <laughs> yes, we did. So, Donnie, you have had such an incredible career so far, and it's not slowing down. So let's go back to the very beginning. How did you get started in music? Oh, gosh, this goes all the way back to uh, probably when I was a kid. I remember when I was five years old, I used to dance around by the record player. My dad used to always play records of uh, Charlie Pride, Merle Haggard, Buck Owens, and then a lot of fiddle music. And I can remember dancing and just listening to music. But I can remember when I was a kid also going to weddings Mm -hmm. and uh, watching live music. And I would be the one kid in front dancing by myself watching the band. And I just, I just somehow I knew that's what I wanted to do. Right. And then it all started when I was 14. I got my first, first fiddle and actually started playing guitar before fiddle. I started playing guitar at the age of 12. Oh, wow. And then I jumped on the fiddle and that's what changed everything for me. And then I knew exactly when I picked up the fiddle, what I was going to do. I had visions of the rest of my life, what I planned on doing, what I was going to do with my music and didn't know how I was going to get there, but I could see it. And I never realized in my wildest dreams it would all come true. That's so amazing. So do you remember what your very first gig was? Uh, My very first gig, I would have to say, yes, I do. I do recall. And I was thinking back, was it with my uncle George? George Sinclair and the Trade Winds. I used to play in his band. But I think even before that, one of my first shows I played was with another band. The guy's name was Murray Middlebrook. And him and his brother, Lance Middlebrook, they had a band and they hired me to go out and play. And I think I was only 15 years old. Wow. So I remember they picked me up and it was a New Year's Eve gig and they had me come out and play with them. And yeah, and it, it was it was good. But my, my Uncle George, first time I ever played with him was a New Year's Eve show. And I was 15 years old and he come out and uh, come to my house and asked me how many fiddle tunes do I know? So I take that back. My first job was with my Uncle George and it was New Year's Eve. And I was 15 years old and it was just outside of Prince Albert and Spruce home. And I remember Uncle George picked me up and I went to play and he said, how many fiddle tunes, you know? I said, I know six, three fast ones and three slow ones. He said, okay, I'm coming over. I want to hear you. (laughs) So he come downstairs and we had a little keyboard downstairs and he played the keyboard and I played the fiddle tunes. And he said, okay, I'm going to book you for New Year's. You're going to come play with me. So that was my first real gig. Wow. It was, was with my Uncle George. That's so cool. Yeah. So what was the first band that you played in? The first band was Uncle George's. Uncle George's? The Trade Winds. Okay, nice. Mm -hmm. And how old were you when you first head out on the road? When I first headed out on the road, I was 19. Wow. Yes. And what's funny is when I was 19, I was actually working for PA bottlers. And they were the ones that that made the Coca-Cola and Diet Coke and all the, the soft drinks across the river in PA. And my brother was my boss, and my Uncle George was our foreman. Oh, wow. <laughs> so when I was 19, my brother Wayne, I give him the most credit. He's my oldest brother, and I give him the most credit of anybody, because he told me, 
that when uh, I had a chance at 19 years old, he said, you're the last, you're the youngest of us four kids. Go do something with your life. He said, get out of here. Take your music and go. He said, you, 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 you deserve to go do something. He said, don't get stuck here. And so I, I, I took his words to, to heart and, and away I went. That's amazing. Those are great words. Um, who did you go out on the road with for the very first time? So when I was 19, I had met Grant and Sean Carson. And we, they were from Ontario, from Welland, Ontario. That's right by Niagara Falls. Okay. So they were out here touring and they played at the, the National Hotel. And this would have been February, probably, fe- yeah, February of 1986. They were playing at the National Hotel. And my aunt, and I just turned 19 a few months before that, in September the year before. So my aunt told me, you need to come out because she worked at the bar. And she said, you need to come out and check out this band. The Grant and, Grant and Sean Carson band. And there was three guys and three girls. So I went out to the jam session and I jumped up and played. Well, lo and behold, the following week, not even a week, I got a call from Grant saying, would you like to come out and play play music for a living? Wow. And I was actually two weeks away from joining, uh, taking my physical and aptitude test for the Air Force. Oh my goodness, wow. Because I, w- I was also on that path in my life where I was going to join the Air Force and I wanted to do four years with them to come back and then be a police officer. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. So that, that, was a, that was another dream that I had. But then I thought, you know what? When this opportunity came, you stand at that crossroads in your life and you have to make a decision. Mm-hmm. You either go left or you go right. You can't go forward. You can't go backwards. And it's your choice only. Very true. So I asked everybody, what do I do? What do I do? And my dad was telling me, man, you don't want to leave. You don't want to leave here. You don't want to give up a job at the Coke plant making $6.60 an hour. He said, that's great money. <laughs> I went, okay. So I wasn't sure what to do. And finally, my heart just told me, go with music. Go go with that gift. But, and my mom told me before I left, she said, remember what you have is a gift. Don't ever take it for granted because it can be taken away as fast as it was given to you. Right. That is such so a cool story. Yeah. She always told me, don't ever think you're better than anybody else because you're not. Right. That is really good advice. Mm-hmm. You also played with Neil McCoy for quite a while. So how did that come to be? And what was that experience like? So when I was with, when I had decided to leave Grant and I was with them for about three years, I came back home and I was living in Prince Albert. Then I toured around with another duo it was Bill and Cindy Bird, and they, they had a motor home, so we went out as a trio cool. and played a little bit around here. Then I came back home, got hooked up with Brian Sklar, Freddie Pelche, and Prince Albert, and I played in Freddie's band for a while, and then I did the number one West TV show. Right. Then Freddie's band, he decided he had enough. He didn't want to do it anymore, so I still needed to look for work. So I hooked up with Joyce Smith out of um, Edmonton, Alberta. And for people out there who are not familiar with who Joyce Smith is... She was the first female artist to sing the song of You Got Leaving On Your Mind. Okay. If You Got Leaving On Your Mind was a Patsy Cline hit. Right. But Patsy did not cut it first. Joyce Smith did. Interesting. And Joyce Smith cut it, and she's a Canadian. So she cut it first, and it sold over 100,000 copies. Patsy Cline wanted to cut it so bad, but they had to make her wait because the, the writer of the song said, I want to see what this Canadian girl can do with the song first. 
Then Patsy Cline, when she recorded it, that was Patsy Cline's last release before she passed away in that plane crash. Oh my goodness, that's so wild. Yeah, so I played with Joy Smith, and while I was with Joy Smith, this was in 1991, and it was March of 91, I was playing in Edmonton, Alberta, and we played a place called the New West Hotel. We got we got to finish early at like 11 o'clock at night on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So we were off early. And Tuesday through Saturday, Neil McCoy was playing at the Cook County Saloon. And that's when videos came out and they were big. So he had a song, If I Built You a Fire, on CMT. Cool. So we went down, we watched him on Tuesday night and got in just when he was wrapping up his set. We met the guys and he said... Uh, Asked who we were, we went backstage. There was only six of us in the bar that night. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we got to go back and say hi to him. Yeah. And and I told him, I said I was a fiddle player, a guitar player. He said, I'm looking for a fiddle player, but he said, I can't afford one. And I left it at that, and I didn't think anything. So I went back, and then when I was done, me and Sean, Sean Carson, because Sean was with me at the time, mm-hmm. and Sean had said to me, he kind of gave me a shove, and he said, go talk to Neil. I said, about what? He said, he wants a fiddle player. I said, but he can't afford one. He said, go talk to him. So I, je- I left my chair and went and talked to him. I said, are you serious about the fiddle player? He said, yes, but he said, I'm serious. I can't afford one. I said, okay. Would you like to hear me play? And he said, well, yeah. I said, are you doing a rehearsal or anything? He said, yeah, the guy's in there rehearsing tomorrow. He said, bring your fiddle and come on by and I'll hear you. I said, okay, great. I appreciate that. So he did. But lo and behold, the band members were so impressed with how I played and they wanted me so bad, they went back to their band house after that rehearsal. And they said to Neil, 25 bucks a week, take it off our pay. There's $100 a week that you have extra. Put whatever else you have to to get this fiddle player because if you don't get them now, someone else is going to grab them way before we can. Oh, wow. That's incredible. So Neil put together, went against his wife's wishes, his manager's wishes, and booked and hired me. Wow. And that's how it started in March of 1991. And I spent 12 years with him. Wow. And what a ride. I bet. That's so insane. That's so cool. So that was a lot of fun. I bet. What are some of your favorite memories from that time? Uh, That year was the first year that I got to go into a major recording studio and record uh, on Neil's Neil's records. And I I was, from that day forward, I was his fiddle player and mandolin player that would go in the studio and record on all the, all of his recordings. Wow. For the, for the time that I was with him. Mm-hmm. And so that was a cool highlight for me and an opportunity. And then the first time I played the Grand Old Opry was with Neil. So cool. And that was, that was my dream to play on the Opry when I was a kid. Since I was a kid, I used to walk around when I was 14 playing fiddle and scratching and squeaking. And I'd tell people, I'm going to play on the Grand Old Opry someday. And everybody thought I was nuts. Well... <laughs> I had the last laugh. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> so it was, um, so that, that was an experience to play in front of a crowd of uh, 85,000 uh, the very first time, 85 to 90,000 people, I think, were at June Jam. This was, this was 1991 in the summer of 91. Wow. To play in front of a crowd that big and to be playing alongside everybody from Garth Brooks, Alan Jackson, Clint Black. Vince, uh, uh, oh gosh, I'm just uh, I'm just trying to think of these names. Anybody that was anybody back in the day was at that show, and there was two people that get a standing ovation and an encore. One was Garth Brooks, and the other one was Neil McCoy. Amazing. 
So that's another highlight. There's so many, so many that I have. I bet. And it's just, just the experience that I took. And then obviously once I decided enough was enough, that's when I came back home and started my career here. Right. And you lived in Nashville for quite a long time. So what was that like? Living in Nashville, I, I lived around the United States quite a bit. I actually started out living in Texas. Okay. I lived in San Angelo, Texas, and then I moved to Longview, Texas, and then from there I went to Nashville. Nice. Then I lived in Knoxville, Tennessee, for a while. That's like right by Dollywood, Pigeon Forge. And then from there I left and went to New Hampshire. New Hampshire is where I ended up, very close to Boston. Okay. Like I, I, was, I was living right by 30 minutes away from Boston when 9-11 happened. Oh, wow. And that's where, that's where the planes were hijacked. Right. A couple of them anyway. But yeah, so the uh, so it was a very interesting time in, in living in the United States, and it was different. And it was a totally different time back then, you know, and just so friendly and, you know, just uh, everybody loving life. It was great. Mm-hmm. Great, great experience. I bet. And uh, when did you move back to Prince Albert? So this was uh, when I retired from Neil in April of 2002. Okay. Uh, I, was work- I was just going on my 12th year, starting my 12th year with him. But I always tell people I was with him 12 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, I think it was November, just before Halloween that year, I decided to come home for a visit. And I drove, I asked my mom, I said, you know, can I just take your car? I want to drive around PA for a little bit as one evening. I drove around for about 20, 30 minutes just by myself, and I'm looking around where, where I grew up, drugged by our old house, my old schools. I just, I, it just felt like PA reached out and went, hey, welcome home. Aw. You know, that's what it felt like to me. And then when I went back home, I said to my mom, you know I could live anywhere I want to, right? She said, yeah, what do you want to do? I said, I think I want to move back home. And, you know, being the youngest of four kids, what's a mom going to say? Are you kidding me? Of course. You can stay with me. <laughs> so that's what it was like. And then I came back home and just decided and met my wife here. Uh, and yeah, think things are great. But that's that's when I decided to move back home was November of 2002. Then I started my band in January of 2003. Nice. And right around the time you moved back was when you started your solo career. So what was the transition like for you to go from band member to front and center? Uh, The only way to explain this, it's six feet away is all I had to walk. Walk six feet forward and don't be afraid. And what I did was I just went forward and I jumped in the middle and I took everything that Neil taught me through the years and whenever I got stuck with something to say on the microphone when I start booking shows, I'd always think in my mind, what would Neil say? What would Neil say right now? Boom, and I'd just say it. And then eventually it just started coming. And then that's where the entertainer comes into play. And you want to entertain the people because that's what it is. It's not just jumping up there with a guitar or a fiddle and playing a song or singing a song. you got to entertain them. True. You have to learn how to tell stories. Mm-hmm. And you have to learn how to speak. When you're, when you're doing those stories. So it, it's a learning process and it took time, but it, it finally got there. And the big thing was, is that my goal was with my voice. I wanted to be as good with my voice as I was with my fiddle. Mm-hmm. And somebody said, you might have just bit off more than you can chew. And I said, I take that as a challenge. <laughs> it's okay. 
because I said, I, I learned fiddle fast. I said, I think I can learn how to sing really quick. Right. And I just kept going and digging and digging. And then what that turned into was all through the years, it turned me into a better songwriter. Mm-hmm. And that's what I absolutely love doing today. That's amazing. And obviously everybody loves what you are doing because you've been nominated in Canada for over 83 different music nominations from Junos to SCMA, which you've won 29 of those, Western Canadian Music Awards, CCMAs, Canadian Aboriginal Music Awards, which you've won seven of those, and many, many others. How does it feel to be so awarded and loved by all of Canadians? Well, you know, I sat back and I did a tally. Uh, just I counted since I was home in 2003 how many how many times was I nominated and I went through and I started counting now this is about five years ago and I've been nominated since I was over a hundred nominations oh my gosh wow over 100 nominations at seven major award shows that's incredible and it just it just kept growing and growing from there and the thing is is to be nominated that many times and just to keep going and to still be sitting here today as we're talking, am I still involved in the music industry? Yes. It's like, pinch me. I didn't need, you know, because a person never knows this day and age what, what, what's going to happen with your music career or anything or how long can you last. Yeah. And it goes back to a saying that an old manager of mine told me. He said, I'll give you an idea of a career. He said, hold a gun, point it up to the sky, pull the trigger. Boom. Okay. He said, but hold it straight up. He said, that bullet's going to come down pretty fast, right? I said, yeah. He said, now, but if he said you angle the gun just a little bit and pull the trigger, think of that like a career. Your career is going to last a lot longer. Don't try to do everything in one day. Take your time. Take your time doing it and you'll last a lot longer. I love that. And that was a good that was a good piece of advice. And he gave me one of the best pieces of advice he ever gave me was never tell anybody what you're going to do. Tell them what you've done. Mm-hmm. Don't say this is what's coming up, this is what I'm going to do. Unless you unless you're rock solid, that's what's coming. Right. Don't ever tell people what you're gonna do. Tell them what you've done. Right. It's a lot more effective that way. That's very good advice. And speaking of what you've done, um, back in 2006, you released an album called What It Takes. Yes. And uh, what was that experience like for you? And who were the songwriters behind the project? I wrote uh, uh, the songwriters on that project was me. And plus I might have had a a couple of Mm co-writers, but every single song on there was written by me. That's amazing. And so when I look at that, uh, that's when I really turned into, I became a songwriter because I had no choice. It was sink or swim. So I I just did it. But getting together with co-writers, a couple of co-writers I'll mention is like, um, oh gosh, uh, Gil Grant. I, I flew to Calgary and wrote two songs with him in two days. Wow. And he told me when I was done and the one song was called Postmarked Heaven. And that was a really big song for me that I released. Right. Another one was called Someone More Lonesome. So when Gil and I wrote, he told me when I left, he said, for you to fly to Calgary and write two songs with me in two days, he said, that says a lot. He said, you, you do have some writing skill. For sure. So then it went from there to uh, 
I think I co-wrote with a couple of more people, but even on that album, just to give you an example, there was a guy that I reached out to, a song called Old Man Thibodeau, and I thought right away, it's Cajun. Who's some of my Cajun friends? I started thinking, I went, Joel Sonye. So I reached out to Joel Sonye, and Joel Sonye had a big hit called Tear Stained Letter back in the day. Okay. And this was the late 80s. And anyway, so I contacted him and asked him, I said, would you be interested in playing on this? And he said, sure. So I said, okay, one more thing. Would you be interested in singing a little bit with me? So all I had to do was send him the track. We had never met. I sent him the track, and he recorded this. But we talked on the phone before, even when I lived in Nashville. Hmm. But we never met each other. So long story short, we ended up doing, I released the single, and I brought him up here to Canada to do a tour in Saskatchewan. That's fun. We toured, we toured seven of the casinos. We went around and toured seven casinos. <laughs> Very first night we played together. The day before we met. That's crazy. When we were done that first show, people come up and said, how long have you guys been playing together? And I said, I just met Joel yesterday. <laughs> wow. And they couldn't believe it. They said, no way. But that's what it's like when you're musically and you can attach to someone musically and you just read each other. Right. It's really cool. A pretty special moment. Absolutely. And who produced this record? That album was uh, produced by Steve Fox and myself. I, I co-produce all my projects as well. That's awesome. And where did you record this project? Some of the record was recorded in Nashville, but a lot, the majority of the record was recorded here in Saskatchewan, like Saskatchewan and Alberta. Nice. And I know it's super hard to pick, but what would you say is your favorite song off of this album? Off that album would be Postmarked Heaven. It is a great song. That, yeah, because that, that was written for my dad. Aw, I love that. And your next album, um, it was called To Whom It May Concern, right? Yes. And you released that back in 2010. So what was that album like to create? That was when I went all out. That's basically when I took a mortgage out on my home. Okay. <laughs> and I had, because I needed the, I needed the funds. Right. Because I had, Harry Stinson was the co-producer of the project with me. Okay. And uh, Harry Stinson's a Grammy-nominated producer. Very cool. So, and he's also the drummer for Marty Stewart. Okay. So when I went down to Nashville, that was done like a full-blown Nashville recording session. And I had every player that I wanted was the players I had on that album. And I just picked the players that I used to play with when I was with Neil McCoy in the studios because they were great players. Right. So to go through that process with Harry, the writing process was a really cool process to do. Mm-hmm. Because for him to walk with me and go in, like Mama Taught Me Love was one of the songs. I remember walking into Jim Photoglow's home and I had no clue who Jim Photoglow was. And Harry said, don't you know who Jim Photoglow is? And I said, no. He said, do you know Fishing in the Dark? I said, yeah. He said, he wrote it. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I said, oh, okay, so this is the big boys I'm playing with. Yeah. <laughs> but all the co-writers, the co-writers I wrote with were the ones that really made me a better writer. Mm-hmm. That's when I had to bring my A game. Every day I'd go out and write with these guys, I had to bring my A game. Yeah, for sure, I bet. So that was a very special project. And then to have uh, Charlie Daniels play on the album. Mm-hmm. And uh, Charlie Daniels even introduced the video when I got the video on YouTube. If people look it up, it's just called Fiddleback. Okay, cool. Look up Donnie Pronto Fiddleback, Fiddleback and you'll see uh, Charlie Daniels introduce the video. I definitely will. I'll do that. 
So there's that. And then uh, on Mama Taught Me Love, there's a mandolin. The mandolin player on that song is none other than Marty Stewart. Oh, my gosh. That is so cool. That's really amazing. And what would you say are your favorite tracks off of To Whom It May Concern? Uh, Mama Taught Me Love and My Girl. Yes, I love My Girl. And plus, plus one, one of my all-time, my all-time favorites is one I never released, but I wrote for my daughter, Juliana, and it's called Chances Are. Okay. Because that was the story of what it was like. when so I wrote the song before Juliana was born. Aww. So if you listen to that song, every line in that song is how, how it made me feel, becoming a dad for the first time. Aw, that's so sweet. Your daughter must love that song. Oh, she does. <laughs> I bet. She always, gets, she always gives me heck when I don't do it at a show either. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's cute. In 2011, you signed a deal with 306 Records and EMI to help distribute your albums. Um, how did that come to be? Uh, 306 and, uh, 306 and EMI, they were affiliated with a gentleman by the name of Louis O'Reilly and Louis O'Reilly had a distribution deal. So it was just distribution. Right. And what they did was they distributed, uh, to whom it may concern and my, my last album that I had. So it was just a matter of contacting them and just asking if they would distribute. And, and it was nice because in fair play, what happened when I was nominated for the Junos, on all three of my albums, I was nominated for Junos. It actually helps them too, because their name gets attached to mine. Right. And that's like Canada national wide exposure. Yeah, exactly. When you see who who the person is and what happens, but it but it's it's really cool. No doubt. But one of the coolest moments with EMI, there was a gentleman by the name of Dean Cameron. He's no longer with us. He had passed, but Dean Cameron really took special care of me. Uh, him and I hit it off really well. And when I was nominated for my second Juno, this was in Ottawa, they actually let me ride the train because <laughs> I went to record. Uh, we shot a video, our li- well, live video footage of uh, Canada AM. Very cool. From there, we went and we jumped on a train. Wow. And I got to ride in the EM EMI car. Oh, no way. That's cool. Going to the Junos in Ottawa. Wow. We left Toronto on a train and rode the train to Ottawa. That's so neat. And we're partying on the train and just going into <laughs> Ottawa. And I'm going, I'm nominated for Juno. And it's like, are you kidding me? That is I so cool. I couldn't believe it. So, but that's, but that's, that's how they took care of you. Wow. That is so cool. And then you released uh, your album, Bring It On, back in 2012. Yes. Um, what was that project like? That project was, was done here. Uh, then I went to Bart McKay. And Bart McKay and I had met the very first time was back in the Brad Johnner and the, the Johnner days, Johnner right. Brothers. Right. And I recorded on uh, Brad and Ken's album. And I had met Bart and just kept in touch with him all through the years. And he became a fantastic producer. And I went to Bart and I said, would you co-produce my next project? And he said, sure. That's wicked. So we got together and I handpicked all the songs. And there was a couple of songs that I did not write on this one. But uh, I just felt they were strong enough and just right down my lane mm-hmm. of, uh, of releasing a song. So I did that. And, but the majority of the songs on there I did write. And so what I was happy with that is once it was all wrapped up and done, uh, that's the one where Deep in the Heart of Saskatchewan is on. Right. And the coolest thing was, was this is also during the time of the Brad Wall when Brad was the uh, premier of Saskatchewan. 
So he was coming through town one day, and I and <laughs> I'll just tell you real quick. I'll back up just a smidge. Yeah, for sure. When I first wrote the song "Deep in Art of Saskatchewan," there was a premiers conference coming through Prince Albert. There were seven Canadian premiers that met. Uh, there were just a lot of high ups. It was a big, big event. Okay. And they had asked me to perform with my band. So I said, sure. So I got my band together. So I went up and I met with the lady with the government and she walked me through the whole room and she said, okay, this is what we want you to do here, here, here. And the show was the following week. And I said, okay, now I'm going to, I said, one condition, I'm going to do this job if you'll allow me to sing one song during the dinner before the dinner starts and I have everyone's attention, just me and my acoustic. And it's a song about Saskatchewan. She said, not a problem. Send me the song. And I said, I can't. She said, why not? Because I said, I didn't write it yet. Oh. <laughs> she said, you're telling me you're going to write a song before next week and it's going to be about Saskatchewan. I said, yep. <laughs> and I did. And I went home that night and I started working on it. And within two days, I had the song written. Wow. And that's Deep in the Heart of Saskatchewan. Nice. And I knew I had something special because that night when I performed it, as soon as I said the word Saskatchewan, they all stood up and they clapped. Aw. Everybody did just stood up and clapped, and it's like they wouldn't stop clapping, and I had to wait for them to stop clapping before I can get the verse number two. <laughs> so it, and I knew it was so it was it was so cool. So once that was done, I hung on to it and I recorded it and then talked with Brad. But even even when I had met Brad, I had this lady come up to me, and it was Brad's wife. Her name is Tammy. So Tammy comes up and she says, "Have you ever done this before?" And she looks at me. She says, "Donnie," and I said, "Yeah." And I looked at her and I said, Tammy? She says, yeah. It was Tammy Kildaw is her maiden name. I graduated high school with her. Oh, no way. Yes. <laughs> so what so she took world. me through. Yeah, she took me through and just told me the protocol of meeting everybody. So the next thing you know, I get up to Brad and he says, I was wondering who was over there hugging on my wife. <laughs> <laughs> so we we were laughing. You know, we, we became actually really good friends, Brad and I. Mm -hmm. And all through this... There was a phone call that came through, and Brad said, can you, uh, his, you know, assistant contacted me and said, can you meet Brad for lunch? He's coming through Prince Albert. He'd like to take you for lunch. I said, okay, great. She said, but do me a favor. Don't bring up the bridge. <laughs> so, okay, I won't. <laughs> I won't. I said, unless he brings it up. I said, but I'm not saying nothing. Yeah. So we went through, and all I did was I had the CD in my hand. And I said, my dad always taught me if you want to go to the top you want to ask somebody something, go straight to the top and ask. So I said, you're the premier of Saskatchewan. Boof, here's the CD. Do something with that song, Deep in the Heart of Saskatchewan. He takes it, contacted me two days later, sent me an email, said it's going to be placed in the time capsule to be reopened 100 years from now. Oh, wow. It's the only CD that's in the time capsule. Wow, that's amazing. Because of that song. So that's why that album is very special to me. For sure. Because 100 years from now. But the only thing is I asked after, did you guys at least put a CD player in there? <laughs> I said no. Because are they going to know what a CD is 100 yeah. years from now? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's so cool. So obviously that song would be one of your favorites. Um, what other favorites do you have from that album? Off of that album, there's uh, which, which brings me to a very special song. And I'm just going to actually, I've got the album down here. I'm just looking so I don't miss one. Off of this album, I would have to say some of my favorites are, were Sun Shower. Mm -hmm. uh, let me see. 
Deep and Art of Saskatchewan, of course. Right. Uh, Can't Afford to Love You was one I did release to radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, Don't Forget the Fish I also released to radio. Yes. And there was a song called You and Bring It On. What I did with both of those songs, I never released my radio back then. But what I did was I released both of those songs last year. Mm-hmm. And how we did that was we just put a remix on them. Okay. Remixed them and brought them up to today. Wow. Now that brings me to the new single that's coming out. Yes. I was just going to ask you about that. (laughs) Now, that's going to drop on May 25th. Perfect. And it is called Snow White, and it features Kenny Shields. Oh, wow. Wow. That's Snow White with Streetheart. Right. Because Kenny Kenny and I were very close. Wow. Very close. And we had, unfortunately, we lost Kenny in, you know, uh, July of 2017. Mm Mm-hmm. And, um... The last message I had to Kenny was a text message I sent him on July 1st because I was playing Canada Day live on, live in the uh, very first ever halftime show at Mosaic Stadium, the new one. And I performed the show and I was excited, so I sent him a text message and he sent me back. He was having a gig too and he just said, you know, love you too. Hmm. And that was the last time I texted him. And it literally, not even 14 days later, he was gone. Oh my goodness. You know, so the thing is, we, we were very close and we hit it off and we had met in, at Telemiracle. Mm-hmm. And so to go, th- to go through with that, when I had first met him, then we kept in touch. And I had asked him for his number and I said, can I keep in touch with you? And he said, well, sure. I said, I don't know if you, if this is going to sound strange or not, but I said, I've always been, I visualize things happening. And I said, and I can see you and I doing some things together. I don't know what it is, but I can see it. But something's coming. He said, oh, okay. He might, I think he kind of thought it was weird at first, but then again, <laughs> once we started talking, he was amazed how much we actually had in common. Right. And it was almost like we were friends for a long, lot longer than we knew each other. We had a lot of the same things in common. Uh, we both we both looked at this industry and sometimes would get, get down. It can actually bring you down and make you depressed. For sure. And we, we both have been through that and we can relate to it. But him on the rock and roll side, me on the countryside. So we would talk about things. So, and this all led up to around 2012, I was nominated for the second Juno. And I was in Ottawa. And Kenny told me that night, I don't care, win or lose, you call me and tell me what happened. Hmm. As soon as the award went on, I didn't win. I went out and I called him. And he said, that's okay. He said, because you know what you're going to do? Get your ass back. Excuse me. You can't get your butt back That's in the okay. studio. <laughs> and he said, uh, he said, get, get back in the studio and record and record another album. Mm-hmm. And he said, and release it and show them how you can do it next year. That's right. I said, okay, one condition. He said, what's that? I said, you come in and sing Snow White with me. Mm. He said, consider it done. I'm already there. Wow. So I had Kenny come in and sing Snow White. So then... It took a long time for me to sit back and decide, am I going to release this? Am I not going to release it? And I was talking with Kenny's wife, Elena. And I had asked Elena, and I've also asked Jeff Neal. He's one of the co-writers for Snow White. Okay. I said, did Kenny ever sing with another artist on anything? And he said, no, never. As far as one of our songs, like a Snow White or anything, he said, never. He, he did back up on, on some other stuff for other people, like on, on, a, on an album a few years back. Right. He did some backup vocals, but he's never really sang on a, 
like like a song one of his mm -hmm. and, and you know and co-sang with somebody so he said you're the only one he's done that for and he said that's how comfortable you used to make him when he would do things i said then i got to release it yeah so that's why the release is coming so but get this this is going to make you excited <laughs> are you a friend of sons of anarchy I am. My husband definitely is. <laughs> do you know who Do you know who Kim Coates is? Yes, I do. Okay, Kim Coates is also a huge fan of okay. Streetheart. Oh. Kim Coates and I hit a developed a friendship when we did Telemiracle Forty. Right. I reached out to Kim Coates, and I had asked Kim Coates, "Would you intro the video?" Oh wow! And Kim said, and Kim basically told me anything for you. Oh, I love that. He said, that. consider it done. So I have Kim Coates introducing the video, and we made a video out of never-before-seen footage of Kenny and I together in 2012 at the EA Rawlingson Center, oh. the very first time we ever sang Snow White together. Oh, wow. So that's all coming out. That's, that's all coming so cool. out on May May 25th. Wow. So mark that down in, mark that down in your calendars, everybody, because that, <laughs> that's what you're going to see. And mm -hmm. the best help you can be to me is call the radio stations and request it Absolutely. as much as you can. Yes. Wow. That's so amazing, Donnie. I am so excited. Oh, I am too. I am too. I, I can't wait for people to see this because we just, we wrapped up the video editing two days ago. Oh, wow. And I, I just can't wait to get it out there. No doubt. So May 25th. May 25th. It's Tuesday, May 25th, right after May long weekend. Nice. That's a good time for sure. That's when people can check my Facebook because I'm going to have a link set up to my YouTube channel. And another thing too, people like subscribe to my YouTube channel as much as you can. Spread it around. Just tell people sign up to that because that's how you'll see a lot of my footage. I will for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Donnie, for chatting with me about your incredible career and your new single coming out on May 25th. I cannot wait to hear it, and I know so many Canadians who feel the same way, and I really hope to see you again soon. Oh, thanks, Allison. I appreciate this. Thank you so much to Donnie for sitting down and chatting with me. Donnie's single release has been changed to mid-June. Make sure you follow him on Facebook at Donnie Peranto so you don't miss this release. You can also find Donnie's music everywhere music is sold and streamed. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. You guys know the drill. Find me on Facebook, Instagram, or through my website. Also, check out my Spotify playlist that has all of the artists that have already been on the show. I will see you guys next Friday.